We are back. We like to do obituaries in this program because we think some people's lives are worthy of comment. We have two sort of parallel people to talk about uh, in our third segment today, uh, which would be William Stevenson, described as journalist and spy, who died in Toronto at age 89 uh, earlier this week, and Tom Clancy, who passed away earlier this year, who we've been waiting to talk about as well. There's some interesting parallels here. William Stevenson wrote uh, about actual events. He had two bestsellers in the 1970s, one, A Man Called Intrepid, and 90 Minutes at Entebbe. Tom Clancy, by contrast, wrote fiction. But, you know, these two, uh, these two subjects blend into one another more than you might think. This correspondent always suspected that Tom Clancy was a bit uh, more of a spy, if you will, than he let on. And then we suspect if he'd been a little bit more honest, he would have categorized himself more like William Stevenson did. Now, uh, William Stevenson, with a V in the Stevenson, uh, was writing about Sir William Stevenson with a PH. Noted the New York Times obituary about Stevenson. He was born in London. His father worked at Bletchley Park, which was the British headquarters for code breaking during World War II. He spent much of his career straddling the worlds of espionage and journalism. Noted the Times, some saw a conflict. Stevenson called both pursuits spycraft. His 1976 book, A Man Called Intrepid, was an admiring portrait of Sir William Stevenson, the masterful Canadian-born intelligence operative who had deep connections with Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt during World War II and continued providing information to both Britain and the U.S. for many years afterward. Noted the Times, the author and his subject had similar names and similar interests, and the book grew out of an unusual relationship which they developed. Stevenson, with a V, a pilot who flew for the British during World War II, fashioned himself into a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star after the war. But, it was noted, he never really stopped serving the British government. While in Canada, he met Stevenson, the spy, who at times suggested world hotspots where Stevenson, the journalist, might cover a story. He also forwarded him intelligence via telegrams. By the 1960s, author Stevenson was working for the Near and Far East News Group, described as a propaganda arm of the British government. He also helped produce documentaries for Canadian television and the BBC, sometimes from inside communist countries or dictatorships, including China. Asked last spring whether his roles as journalist and government informant conflicted, Stevenson said, no, I never felt I was betraying anybody. I was not betraying secrets. I wasn't causing anybody harm, unless it was people I did not like who were communists. Contrast this with Tom Clancy. His debut novel, 1984's The Hunt for Red October, was crammed with so much technical information about Soviet submarines, satellites, weapons, and fighter planes that high-ranking members of the military supposedly wondered if the Maryland insurance salesman-turned-author had a spy inside the Pentagon. Clancy said, when I met Navy Secretary John Lehman, that was in 1985, the first thing he asked me about, about the book was, who in the hell cleared it? Clancy replied, no one had. All his knowledge came from technical manuals, interviews with submarine experts, and books on military matters. Clancy said, I hang my hat on getting as many things right as I can. I've made up stuff that turned out to be real. That's the spooky part. Well, let's just say that this correspondent has his doubts. 
The legend is that in the early 1980s, Clancy used his spare time to finish a draft of The Hunt for Red October, which is, which is a pretty good book and later pretty good movie. Again, according to the legend of the story, the, the Naval Institute Press in Annapolis, Maryland, quote, took a risk on the manuscript, unquote, and also on Clancy, who was the first-time author of original fiction. They bought it for $5,000. Now, somewhere along the way, President Ronald Reagan gets handed a copy and tells the press that it's my kind of yarn, said he couldn't put it down. Everyone wants to know, what's the president talking about? Next thing you know, The Hunt for Red October is a bestseller. Clancy then rattled off one thriller after another. According to his obituary, several of his brick-sized novels, which also included 1987's Patriot Games and 1989's Clear and Present Danger, got turned into Hollywood movies featuring Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, and Ben Affleck, respectively, playing hero Jack Ryan, who is a Wall Street stockbroker turned CIA agent who winds up becoming president. Shades of George Herbert Walker Bush. At any rate, we'd like to refer you to our own archives where we talked about uh, the actual tracking of Soviet submarines back during the Cold War. That was show number 477. We would just note today that the reality wasn't quite like the hunt for Red October. But it was still pretty damned interesting. As mentioned at the top of the program, we're probably going to go to an old friend of ours, Roger S. Peterson, to talk about uh, an op-ed piece he got into the Sacramento Bee titled Seven Reasons to Reject the Warren Report. That's, that's a worthy topic. and would like to be able to say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Roger Peterson. Thank you, Doug. Good to be here. It is good to have you back, and, and I want to say I, I'm completely in agreement with your piece where you sort of played off of what Jack Oman said in the B. And how, how would you describe what Oman and Mr. Breton, Marcus Breton, had to say about JFK? Basically, he said, you know, you, people see what they want to see about the JFK assassination, and uh, if they see a conspiracy, they see a conspiracy, and if they see no conspiracy, they de- deny those of us who are researchers in the area. Uh, it was Breton, however, who really crossed the line, I thought, when he, he said that uh, this fascination and fixation on JFK is um, just a fantasy among baby boomers. Well, you know, I'm a baby boomer. Uh-huh. And then I kept on rereading it to see, did he really say that? I mean, when you think about it, baby boomers are the last readers of newspapers. Yeah, probably a bad group to offend for Mr. Batone. My daughter doesn't read newspapers. My son doesn't read newspapers. So what's he doing this for? So I'd spent uh, you know several hours writing this piece and then cutting it down because it had to fit 400 words. And I thought I was being relatively nice. You're nicer than we are. We refer to Marcos Breton's comments as bloviations on this program. So uh, I thought you were being very well-mannered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But um, you, you cited seven reasons to reject the Warren Report, Roger, and I think we should basically, I want to say that I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with, with you on, on this topic. And let's just, let's just kind of go through a, maybe three of them that I, I especially agree with you on, okay. um, just briefly. You noted number three was that Oswald was found on the second floor eating his lunch, drinking a Coke, and not winded for someone who had just raced down several floors. And, and that, yeah. that is certainly true. Just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, 90 seconds after the shooting, a cop has a pistol in his belly. And per the Warren Commission, he just got done shooting the president, runs down four flights of stairs, goes into the, into the break room, and apparently buys a Coke. I always like that, that little, little part. I think, if I recall correctly, the secretary saw him putting the dime in the machine to get the Coke. 
twelve fifteen, she reported in that he was uh, yeah looking for change and was in the break room. Yeah, and so there, you know, there you go. Yeah, I mean the, the Dallas police admitted they had they had no evidence putting Oswald up on that sixth floor at the time he's supposed to be there. So, you know, I'm with you on this one. Yeah, but oddly, 30 minutes later, an all-points bulletin goes out describing him. And to this day, uh, we would note to our listeners, uh, they've never identified who, who was the source of that, of that pretty accurate description. Don't know. Lost to posterity. And, and point number five you mentioned, and, and you mentioned that researcher Gary Aguilar identified testimony among 42 Dallas and Bethesda physicians that the exit wound was at the back of the skull. And we had Dr. Aguilar on this program uh, uh, some weeks back talking about very, that very topic. And indeed, the, the witnesses describe a wound in the back of the skull, which is completely inconsistent with the official findings. And, and Dr. McClellan, who was in the room with the, the president's body, reiterated that just a month ago at a conference in Pittsburgh. I was there for that, Roger, and I got to hear McClellan. He was very convincing that, you know, he paid very close attention and that it appeared to be an exit wound, meaning that the shot that killed the president apparently came from the notorious grassy knoll. Somewhere from the front. Somewhere from the front. Point six, I'm with you on, too. You said that Oswald, the loner, Ruby, and others are loners, but the CIA still holds 1,171 documents until 2017. Why? I mean, what's the point? I mean, these are two unlikely people. And Ruby, two days later, wanted to save Jackie from having to testify at a, at a trial. I mean, who could possibly believe that? The guy ran a strip club. Roger, you know, it's, fu- it's funny you said that. People cite that all the time in defense of the Warren Commission as to why Ruby did this. But Ruby himself admitted later, yeah, I was given that excuse by one of my lawyers, Joe Tonahill. That, that, was, that was just made up. Yeah, and it was a pretty bad defense, <laughs> I would say, for a lawyer to suggest that. Although, if you want to talk about bad defenses, Tonahill and Melvin Belli, notorious uh, uh, San Francisco attorney, oh, yeah. suggested that Ruby shot Oswald in the midst of a seizure. He was having a seizure, and that's why he shot, shot Oswald, which I thought, that's got to be all time. Well, you know, I've seen that film roll over and over for 50 years, and he looked like he was pretty stable to me <laughs> in, in terms of his gait and his, his, the way he ran up to Roswell and stuck the gun in his stomach. As a physician, I would have to say I've seen a lot of seizures in my time, and it didn't look like Ruby was having one when he, when he plugged Oswald. <laughs> no, it doesn't look that way to me. Well, Roger, for my own part, I would like to just augment your seven reasons to reject the Warren Report and see if you wouldn't agree with me on these. That the Two of the things I might add are that when they had the alleged assassin in custody, the CIA in Mexico City sent to Dallas tapes of a man who had self-identified as Oswald just six weeks earlier. The FBI and the Dallas police knew that that was not the real Oswald. But this whole thing got buried in the process. To me, that's one of the, maybe the single most uh, astonishing facts in the case. There are so many astonishing twists and turns in this case. And as I pointed out in the editorial, Warren Commission people... Uh, defenders say, well, this, these are all coincidences. But, you know, <laughs> mathematical logic and chance does not work that way. It, it can't all be coincidences. At some point, there's circumstantial connections. Well, the fact that somebody calls up the embassy and says, hi, this is Lee Oswald. I was just over at the Soviet embassy speaking to comrade uh, Kostikov, who's, of course, a notorious KGB guy, and we know later that it's not Oswald. I mean... That, that raises eyebrows, or should. It's just a remarkable case, and the more you get into it, you're going to wind up with years and years of, of trying to answer questions that pop up every time you find an answer to one. It just does not make sense. 
And the other thing is, all the other attempted assassinations of American presidents or attempted assassinations of American presidents, the perpetrator publicly said, I did it, I wanted to do it, it had to be done. Only one came out and said, you know what, I've been set up, I'm a patsy. I have to agree with you, and I think that if you look at uh, world history, that in general, in, in most cases, uh, uh, yes, the people that commit these acts are proud of it, they did it for a reason, and they don't, they don't, uh, they don't deny their, their culpability, and Oswald is quite unique in that. Now, they have that deer-in-the-headlights expression on his face when they were leading him out uh, in the Dallas uh, police station, and he was fairly assertive that he was not involved, and at one point he says, I haven't even been charged with that yet. Yeah, I would invite all of our listeners, because you can see this on YouTube, to go pick up that clip yeah. and take a look at it. And when, when a reporter asks him if he shot the president, he says, no, I've not even been charged with that. And the reporter says to him, you have been charged with that. The look that momentarily hits his face, well, you can't, you can't say what it means, but it's, it's a curious thing to observe. Yeah. He looks um, very surprised. He obviously was involved in something, because the CIA was following him for four years at least. The FBI was following him. J. Edgar Hoover was well aware of him. Uh, so he was involved in something. But as the way those um, uh, clandestine operations work is one handoff to another handoff to another handoff. And suddenly he realized that um, whatever he was doing that day was a setup. There are so many odd things that happen. You remember the incident just before the motorcade comes around where uh, the crowd is distracted by somebody who has an epileptic seizure on the corner where the big turn is made. That, that's a little-known fact in the case, but yes, that is true, yes. And suddenly an ambulance pulls up, puts the man in the back of the ambulance, and takes off. To this day, we don't know who the man was, and we have no record of an ambulance being sent to that corner of, of all times, the presidential motorcade. I wasn't aware of that. I thought that the man uh, just refused medical care when they got to the hospital and disappeared into, into uh, the mists, but um, I don't know. Where's his name? They must have recorded his name someplace. And where's the ambulance? Who well, sent the ambulance? Yeah. Roger, it's a topic that people are going to debate uh, forever, and we're probably going to debate it forever on this program. And, and sometime in 2014, we'll have to have you come back and talk about this a little bit more. I do want to note, Roger, that in the past we've had you on talking about uh, writing, good writing skills. You are a marketing consultant and trainer, and you've been a book ghostwriter. And I think in 2014, I, I want to have you come back and talk about that topic. Oh, that's a great topic. How many books have you ghosted? Well, one was my own book, but six, I'm working on my sixth ghostwritten book, or a book where I, I'm the developmental editor. Uh, developmental editing is somewhere between copy editing and, and full ghostwriting. So developmental editing is major surgery. <laughs> and uh, ghost writing is uh, pretty much Frankenstein. <laughs> Putting together the pieces? Yeah. From the corpse, the corpses? Yeah, and then turning on the, uh, you know, the bolt <laughs> and saying, it's alive, it's alive. Roger, we're going to have to talk about this in 2014. Sounds good. All right, well, thanks for speaking to us again, and, uh, and I know you'll be back. Thank you. That about does it for today's program which was produced by Edward McMillan, whose hair transplant's frankly looking a bit mousy. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We would like to note that our good pal Will Durst will be in Chico next week, Friday, December 13th, 
He will be appearing at the Blue Room Theater in downtown Chico. I'm sure that our, our listeners at KZFR will take due note of this. But uh, Chico's a fun field trip for those living in the greater Davis area as well. So you might want to think about that one. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Change.